Alternative Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone, everywhere. Hey everybody, welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael, and this week we're taking a look at dogs, man's best friend. Or to avoid controversy, let's just say humans or humanity's best friend. It's a pretty well-established bit of information that dogs are the most ancient domestic animal. In addition to that, it's very interesting that they are the only domestic animal present on every continent during ancient times, which, yes, means they were here in North America before the arrival of the Europeans and, I might add, the before the arrival of European dogs. They have aided and abetted in our evolution and adaptation to everywhere on the surface of the Earth. And they've even flown into space over 60 times. First, I'd like to say that, yes, I am a dog lover. have nothing against cats. They have many special qualities, I'm told. But there is a reason that dogs have been a part of human society for so long. They're adaptive, trainable, willing, and eager to help. And they're just good companions. There is a reason that the Egyptians worshipped cats. That's because that's pretty much what the cats wanted. (laughs) The cats tolerated it. It's a matter of demeanor. The dogs were just happy to be our friends. They don't require worship, just a good scratch on the head and your acknowledgement that you appreciate them. And I say this knowing that I might make some people mad about cats. It's not my intent. We have four cats in my household and two dogs, and this case study suggests that my dogs are always much happier to see me when I come home than the cats are. But that just might be a statement about what the cats think about me, because the cats seem very happy when my oldest daughter comes home from school. Most of my dogs throughout my life, as have been pretty much all of our cats, have always been cast aside, unwanted, outcasts, dropped off on the side of the road, or in the case of my oldest dog, a Catahoula bred for hunting, well, he was a transgressor. He had been more interested in playing with other dogs than learning how to hunt hogs. So he was, from what it appears, abused and then given away to me. But we got through it together, and he's been a good dog for almost 14 years now. Some of his psychic wounds have healed, um, but he's still skittish about certain things from the way he's treated when he's quite young. So they have long memories, despite what some people have said about animals. Um, He remembers lots of things, Um, and others linger still. I hope I've been there to help him as much as he's been there for me. And that's another special thing about dogs. They share in your joys. And when you're sad, they are content to lay their head on your knee and share in your grief. At least that's been my experience throughout the years. Dogs are loyal. They love you for who you are unconditionally. They're protective. They're genuine. They do not fake their feelings for anyone. They are dependable and eager to make you happy. They're helpful. They're faithful companions. They always want to be with you. I have a young daughter, special needs child and blind. One of her favorite things to do is swing. Now, we're always close to her. 
but she's of an age where she's fairly safe to be swinging by herself. We keep checking on her constantly every couple of minutes because we can always hear her when we're outside doing stuff in the yard and she's swinging on the swing set. And my oldest dog, Cormac, the Catahoula, he's always there sitting by her while she swings because he's there to look over her as a protector. Dogs are great. Penis creator Charles Schultz, you know, Charlie Brown and Snoopy, the ever-precious and troublemaking beagle. He said, happiness is a warm puppy. Mark Twain said, if you pick up a starving dog and make him prosperous, he will not bite you. This is the principal difference between a dog and man. Czech novelist Milan Kundera, this goes away across the other side of the world, had this to say about dogs. Dogs are our link to paradise. They don't know evil or jealousy or discontent. To sit with a dog on a hillside on a glorious afternoon is to be back in Eden, where doing nothing was not boring. It was peace. And the great Bill Murray shares this wisdom. I'm suspicious of of people who don't like dogs, but I trust a dog when it doesn't like a person. And as you can see, as always in every episode, I love quotes. And let's do one more quote. And this is from uh, the great poet and writer, Jim Harrison. I don't think I'm any more important than a dog or a cat. It's become alien to my nature. That sort of self-importance that is so egregious in this effing pop stand. I could do my imitation of an important novelist entering Elaine's, but why? There's no bigger trip than self-importance. To blind you. To decrease the energy of your art. So the animals come in there, whether horses, dogs, cats, bears, and birds, to help keep you ordinary. And my dogs have always helped keep me down to earth. So those are just a few things to ponder over. But, like, Okay, this is Texas History Lessons. Why are you going on and on about dogs? Because this episode I've been looking forward to, I've been talking about bringing up and passing a lot that uh, the tribes, they, the indigenous peoples before contact had dogs. They used them and depended on them. I thought, why not go dig a little deeper and learn a little bit more about dogs? So here we are. We're looking at the history of the indigenous dogs of Texas and the Americas. As with everything that we look at when we go way, way, way back in time, finding a clear-cut definitive answer is pretty hard to do. But with DNA and archaeology and other research, we do the best we can. So when it comes to the evolutionary history of dogs, it gets pretty murky, and it still remains, I guess, from what I've been reading, a controversial scientific question but we're going to do our best because fortunately there have been some remarkable discoveries in recent years. Some have suggested that the dogs of native Americans were from tamed native American wolves. This isn't apparently the way it happened, or at least it's not the way it first happened because the first dogs apparently that came across came with the first people as they crossed thousands and thousands of years ago. Recent genetic studies suggest that canine domestication might have been as early as 27,000 to 40,000 years ago in East Asia, a time matching closely to the possible earliest arrival of people into Beringia, going across the Bering Strait into 
the, the Americas. And much earlier than the 15,000 years ago, it was thought to have happened in the Middle East at one point. From Asia, they moved to the Middle East, Africa, and reached Europe about 10,000 years ago. But to put it simply, how did a wolf become a dog? Honest answer, nobody really knows. But we have two really good theories, and I, I like both of them, and I don't see necessarily why anybody has to rule out either one of them. Now, the classic theory is the prehistoric hunter-gatherers would take wolf cubs from their dens and raise them to be companions in hunting and protecting the camps. And over years and years and years of selective breeding, they attained the traits that we appreciate so much in dogs. Now, another theory that's growing, I guess, is that it was a co-evolution. Wolves, of course, would have scavenged leftover carcasses from a hunt. They had been foraging the trash dumps out of necessity and learned quickly that these strange, mostly hairless walkers on two legs were an opportunity other than food themselves. Wolves are smart. Dogs are smart. They learn from being around us. Some wolves would have been tempted to follow the bands, eager to pick up the next scrap or feast on the remains of the next carcass. Over time, humans would have formed relationships, possibly with these stragglers. It's all just theory. But after something along those lines occurred thousands and thousands of years ago, the dog became a constant feature in human life as we spread all over the world. Now, this would have taken a very long time. There was this Russian scientist guy named Dmitry K. Belyev. B-E-L-Y-A-E-V. He began a program of selective breeding foxes in the late 1950s. Now, he was doing this program so that he could get funded and allowed by the Russian government. He said it was for trying to get better wolf pelts. What he was really trying to do is find out how long would it take to breed out the wildness from the fox. The program apparently lasted over 40 years and was carried on even after he died. By the fourth generation, Belia discovered that they began to see some positive changes. The foxes started becoming more what you'd call dog-like. As one member of the team said, by intense selective breeding, they had compressed into a few decades an ancient process that originally unfolded over thousands of years just by selecting for friendliness. They selected for friendliness and they noticed that over time, there were other, even physical changes that were being made within a few generations. And there was even an including a change in an increase in social skills. Let's compare the scientific theory to native legends, though, like I, like I tend to do. In a book called Dog People, Native Dog Stories, Author Joseph Bruchak, or Bruchak, B-R-U-C-H-A-C, you can look it up, shared some interesting stories. In one of them, a spirit brought together all the creatures of the earth with the goal of finding a companion for people. When asked how they would treat people, some answered that they would tear human beings apart. Others said that they would happily live near people so that they could steal their food. Then here comes up the dog, who said his wish was to live with people, share their food, help them hunt, guard their children and possessions, and even risk their own life for them. 
Another legend Bruchak shares says that a dog's life originally spanned 20 years, but that the dog willingly gave up 10 of his own so people could live longer. Then there's a story I found from the Arikira that says that dog followed the first people when they left the underground world to live in this one. But after they came up into this world, sadly, people just started to die from a number of diseases. Dog, being selfless, offered his body to be used as a sacrifice so that people might survive. Dog told them that his spirit would reside in the future generations of dogs. He said, I shall always remain with the people. I shall be a guardian for all their belongings. Then there's a Cree story. There once lived a hunter alone, save for his wife and their little four-year-old boy. It was a cold winter and deep snow covered the ground. Game was scarce and they needed food. They were on the verge of starvation. One day he found a buffalo track and he searched all day long, but he could not find the animal. He started home, returned home, and disheartened as he was outside the tent about to enter, he heard his young son crying from hunger and his wife was inside comforting the boy. Don't cry, my son, she said. Perhaps your father has killed a buffalo. That may be why he is late in coming home. The man just froze there, out in the cold. He didn't really freeze, but he stopped, turned around, and went away from the tent. He returned into the night, praying for help, tears running down his face as he resumed the hunt, and then he found more buffalo tracks near dawn. A wolf ran up to him and said, My son, why are you weeping? The man replied that his wife and child were starving. I'm in sore need, the man said. The wolf advised the man to hide. He told him that he would bring the wolf to him and then the man should only use the wolf's bows and arrows that the wolf gave him, not his own. The man took up the small bow and shot six buffalo without fail. A seventh buffalo remained. He didn't listen to the wolf's instructions and the hunter used his own bow and, of course, missed. They butchered some of the animals, and the wolf requested two of the buffalo to be left for his wolf companions and their children, and the man did as requested. And he carried as much meat as he could home to his starving family. Having eaten, gained strength, the family moved their tent to where the remaining buffalo carcasses were, and the wolf joined with them with his family. The woman fed them waste cuts of meat until they became tame, they even let her harness Trevois to them to help move things. Thus, the people and dogs came to live in harmony. And I want to add one more. I have a tendency to go a little bit long with this, but this is a beautiful story. Uh, this is a story from the Lenny Lenape. You've probably heard of them as the Delaware Indians from the Northeast who ended up you're going to be you're going to be learning a lot about them in texas history because they are an important part of texas history because even though they were originally from the northeast they were everywhere and especially here in texas and this is a story about a young boy's relationship with his dog the ending is kind of sad i'll probably just leave the very ending off um i just want to get to the gist of this there's a story about a boy and a dog that were left alone in a village the boy's parents had died leaving him alone and the people of the village had moved on he awoke one cold morning with nothing to eat 
The band had moved on and left him. He explored the empty village, finding only old bread and some bones. Then he heard something, the cries of a little puppy. He followed the sound until he found a poor, bony, flea-bitten puppy. But the little puppy's cries filled the boy with joy. He cared for the puppy, and they became companions. He hunted and provided for the little one as the new puppy grew into a dog. It began to help him find food for both of them. Often the boy wandered on where his people had fled to. One day the dog said to the boy, Master, you've been kind to me and reared me to be able to help you. So now I make friends with you. We will be friends for a lifetime. And the dog continued, You're thinking about getting to your people, so I'm going to help you. The dog gave the boy the power of a dog, the animal's instinct to know their home. They traveled together hunting deer and buffalo. Eventually they found their people that had left them behind. He became a very successful hunter for the band and quite popular with the young maidens. A runt, abandoned like the runt puppy, rejoined his people as one of their greatest providers. And I'll end the story right there. Uh, jealousy comes into play as does often happen in this real life with people and people played some mean tricks and treated the boy badly in the end. But let's move on to the Americas in Texas. Rather than get lost in all the details and arguments about precisely when dogs first arrived in the Americas, let's agree that several thousand years ago, at least 15 and perhaps as much more, many more thousands of years, man's best friend crossed over from Asia with the hunters at their sides. They helped with hunting. They pulled sleds in snow. They pulled travois on the dry plains to move goods. They helped move freight on trading expeditions. They also helped haul firewood in camp and aided in daily chores. A dog could carry up to 50 pounds on its back. Pulling a travois, it could move up to 70 to 100 pounds. Think about how useful this was when butchering buffalo and then moving the hundreds and hundreds of pounds of meat back to camp. A woman with several dogs could gather and bring to camp enough wood to take care of the family for a few weeks at a time. They served as protection, being alert guard dogs. They were used in religious ceremonies, sometimes even sacrifice, which shows their importance because a sacrifice is meaningless unless the thing sacrificed is held dear. And yes, they were eaten when needed. Some tribes apparently appreciated them more than others for food, and others just didn't allow eating dogs at all. And in the end, they were just our stead, the steadfast companions of the First Peoples here. Another interesting service they provided that I hadn't thought of was child care. When they were moving from one camp or hunting ground to another, it was not uncommon for a mother to place a young child on a trusted dog's the basket on the travois that was being pulled behind the dog. And for several miles, the dog had a fun, fun ride while the mother had a break for a second, not having to take care of the child constantly. Some of the oldest dog remains have been in a sinkhole in Florida in recent years. The dating puts the uh, bones at 14,500 years up to 15,000 years old, which points for me at a much earlier arrival in the Americas to have reached Florida in that time. Some people think that man might not have made it as far as they did without the assistance of the dog in many different roles that they played. One researcher, Dr. Stuart Fetal, stated they were man's best friend and mammoth's worst enemy. 
Whatever the case, dogs went everywhere in the Americas, and through selective breeding, the dogs changed, just as the first peoples changed and adapted to the various environments and resources that they found themselves in. Yes, 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 yes. That's all good, Mr. Texas History. I said, what about the dog in Texas? All right. Let's take a quick break to thank Aether Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons, and then we're going to dive back in to dogs of Texas and in the Americas. In August of 1528, either on Galveston Island or a little island just to the south, the Coco Curancawas would have probably been out digging for roots during their multifaceted, ever-shifting search for sustenance with each growing season. Now, of particular interest is that Karankawa's name meaning is believed to be dog lovers. Karan meaning dog and Kawa meaning to love. And on this particular day in August 1528, they must have been pretty surprised to see this strange looking bedraggled hairy faced figure stealing an earthen pot full of mullet some fish and one of their beloved dogs from their camp. Three men grabbed their bows, followed them. They called out to them. I don't know what they said, but I was probably something like, hey, where are you taking our dog? The thief's name was Lope de Oviado. And he was part of the Narvaez expedition that had been washed ashore to Texas along with Cabeza de Vaca and several other men. Rather than filling the men with arrows and having a barbecue, as later attackers would accuse the Karankawas of being cannibals, which apparently they weren't, the Cocos took pity and aided the castaways. What happened next is something we will get to in Season 2 of Texas History Lessons. The important thing here is the little dog. Let's stay focused. We'll get to this story. It's a good one. The dogs of the Karankawas are described as being small and barkless. Some say coyote-like in appearance, and they accompanied them apparently everywhere, even on the boats that they used to travel the wetlands and to the islands. Now, these small, barkless dogs were also the similar to the dogs of uh, the peoples of South Texas. Possibly the Coaticans had similar dogs from what I've seen. They had small, barkless dogs. Now, why would you want to raise a dog that would be barkless. I've pondered this, and apparently one benefit of having a dog that's not barking all the time is because if you are in hiding, you don't want a dog barking. Because if somebody's out uh, on a war party coming to find you, a barking dog's just going to give your position away. And likewise, it could attack predators. A barking dog could attack predators. And when you are hunting, the dog making barking could make noise and scare uh, prey away and also let people know that you're in the vicinity as well. Now, up on the plains of Texas, the Apaches would have been hunting buffalo accompanied by a different kind of dog. One witness described them as driving great trains of shaggy dogs that pull travois loaded with their tent coverings, food, and other belongings. These must have been the Southern Plains dogs that we're going to hear a little bit about in just a second. Once loaded by the women who put the dog's head between their knees and hooked them up to adjust the load, and then the line of dogs would travel at a steady gait in a well-trained manner. 
The Tonkawas seemed to have had similar dogs and used them in the same manner. Then there were the dogs of the Caddos in the Northeast. Their dogs were used to hunt both bear and they used them to hunt buffalo, which wasn't always something that a lot of people did. A Frenchman reported that these dogs had straight ears and muzzles like foxes. Now the dogs along the Rio Grande in the land of the Humanos and others are described also as small shaggy dogs that were kept in underground pens. I have not been able to find much more than that specifically about the dogs of Texas. Hopefully maybe we can find some more out as we travel along back in the past. But that doesn't mean our investigation has to end there. Because we can look at the Plains tribes and see what they did. The Plains tribes in breeding, they kept the larger puppies and the ones that had the best temperaments because they needed bigger dogs for pulling the heavy loads that they had to pull. Farther to the north, it's said that wolves often mated with female dogs and that apparently the people didn't discourage this. The people believed that breeding with wolves would ensure strength and fertility. Now, in the North Central Plains, developed a breed called the Sioux Dog. They were large and gray and often mistaken with wolves when away from camp. They had large, sharp, upright ears and curved tails. To the south, there was a smaller Plains Dog that sounds similar to what the Apaches would have had. They had shorter hair, and they were more like a coyote than a wolf in both size and color. These Plains dogs came in other colors, white, black, spotted, and mottled aside from just tawny and gray. But all was not always joyful when it came to dogs. The large packs in the villages could get annoying as they battled for attention and resources and often resorted to thievery from visitors and even from their own masters in order to get another bite or something to chew on. Each family might have had 20 to 40 dogs to move their possessions and aid in work so a large village could have had quite a few animals to deal with. But through it all, the dog was always very important. It's hard to stress how important. And the way the horse revolutionized things later is also not an exaggeration. But we're going to get to the horse later. The crow appreciated their dog so much that they attached a single feather, a single eagle, eagle feather, to their sacred pipes. And this feather represented the dog tail because the dog is a protector and friend of every person in the world and the esteem for the dog would be passed on to the horse whom the peoples called big dogs the kiowas and other plains nations held dogs in such high esteem that their greatest warriors were often called the real dogs in the case of the kiowas they were katsinko they were the greatest warriors from across all the bands and you had to have proven yourself worthy to be called a real dog. As for eating dogs, it varied. The Pawnees, Apaches, Cheyenne, Arapaho, Sioux. Apparently, they considered it a delicacy. I know, what's for supper? Fido, oh boy. Yummy. But I've heard they eat horses in France, so, you know, cultures vary um, to each his own. I'm, I'm not planning on eating my dog anytime soon. The Shoshone and Crow refused to eat dog, apparently. Um, except Crow were said later to have started eating dog for certain special ceremonies in later years. And that would have probably been from some other kind of influence. And the Comanche, as we've covered in past lessons, 
were a branch of the Shoshone, so they would have had great, great reverence for the dogs and probably wouldn't have eaten them unless absolutely necessary. Far to the north in British Columbia, Canada, existed a dog called the Tall Ton Bear Dog. And such a ferocious looking hunter it was, standing at a foot to a foot and a half tall and weighing 10 to 18 pounds. Tiny dog. And so why is this called a bear dog? It wasn't for fighting the bear. Their value was elsewhere. The hunters would carry the dogs in pouches until some tracks were found. The dogs would then run lightly across the top of the snow, find the bear, bark and alert the hunters of where to go, and harass the bear until the hunters could arrive. The little monsters were black with white markings and white with black markings. I'm sure they felt, thought themselves quite ferocious once they found a bear. And who is unaware of the imagery of the Inuit dog of Canada, Alaska, and Greenland? An amazing dog full of energy and strength whose males grow as large as 85 pounds with coats that can vary from a range of colors, but their endurance and stamina are great for hauling loads of fish, whale, and seal, and walrus to the village. In northern British Columbia, in the land dominated by the Salish-speaking peoples, there lived the Little Woolly Dog, also known as a West Coast Salish or Clallam Indian Dog. This little beast, a bit bigger than a Pomeranian, I understand, was valued because it grew really thick, long, white hair. And that hair would be used and dyed like wool. And then there are other native dogs that we have names for. Uh, there was the Peruvian pug-nosed dog, the Fujian dog, the Inca dogs, and then there's the Zolo, Sholo, Sholo Sequently dog. If you've watched Coco, that's the dog I'm talking about. Extremely fine coat of hair, if it's any hair at all. Um, beautiful dog that's still around. Uh, the Chihuahua. And then there was the Hair Indian Dog of the North. Now what about the arrival of the Europeans? Um, the odds of encountering any of these dogs, except for a couple that I've mentioned, is very unlikely. Only a few breeds that can be proven by DNA survive. And why? Well, one reason is that once the first peoples no longer dominated the lands of North and South America because of the colonization of the Europeans and the Europeans, when they came, they viewed the Indian dogs as pests and the same people that wouldn't hesitate to kill an entire village of people wouldn't have hesitated to kill all the dogs as well. And it's also thought that disease, um, played a big role there's possibly that they could have brought specific diseases that these dogs wouldn't have been uh, familiar with just like the peoples of america were not familiar with the diseases that came across with the europeans and that could have done a lot of damage and then there's also just the issue of interbreeding and the dilution of the native breeds uh, by breeding with the european dogs um in fact, as one researcher explains in something I read, out of 5,000 samples of modern dog genes, only five had genes that belonged to ancient dogs. And in those five, the ancient genes made up less than 2% of their genome. 
So are there any left? Yeah, there are a small number of breeds still around. The Mexican Chihuahua, the Sholo, the Mexican hairless dog I mentioned before that uh, my youngest daughter's favorite movie is Coco. So I've seen that dog hundreds of times. Um, the Peruvian Perro Sin Pelo, a Peruvian hairless dog, are believed to be examples of some of the original breeds. The Hare Indian Dog and the Talt and Bear Dog have apparently disappeared as their aboriginal hunting methods declined. Um, modern Arctic breeds thought to be indigenous include the Inuit Sled Dog, the Canadian Eskimo Dog, and the Grillin Dog. Um, all three are thought to share the same origin and the Alaskan Malamute. And then there's another dog that I'm interested in called the Carolina Dog. He's apparently a free-ranging dog in the East, uh, thought to have been a, have a strong connection to, and the DNA apparently shows this, to original native breeds. So it's, it's, it is sad that uh, you're not going to find a lot of examples of the really pure dogs that have the indigenous dog DNA, but we still have our dogs. And just like they appreciated them, we can still appreciate the ones we have. And, you know, go out and give your uh, best friend uh, an extra dog bone or something. Um, before we end the episode, I have a little bit of trivia. Do you know what the state dog of Texas is? It's the Blue Lacey. And the Blue Lacey is a breed developed in Burnett county that's spelled b-u-r-n-e-t but from my understanding it's called burnet because you know this is texas and why not say things differently than the spell and they were developed by brothers frank george edwin and harry lacy during the mid-1800s the state of texas designated it as the official state dog breed on june 18th 2005 it has been passed down that the Lacey brothers used Greyhound, Scenthound, and Coyote stock to develop the breed. Now, this dog is a beautiful dog. Go look it up online. You're going to want one. Um, they're extremely intelligent and trainable. They've got this smooth, sleek coats that are usually gray. Some are red or cream. Others have white on the chest, and sometimes on their paws, they have white. The... Adults can be as much as a little bit over two foot at the shoulder and weigh from 25 to 50 pounds. They also have a very unique yellow to orange colored eyes. Uh, they're, they are natural herders and are said to be able to round up everything from chickens to a bunch of Texas longhorns. And that's going to do it for us on dogs. I hope you enjoyed this one. I enjoyed researching it and learning about it. If you've got any comments, please let me know. Um, I'm always open for more information in preparation for this. I actually had some people that lived in the Pacific Northwest uh, fill me on about the about the woolly dog and had told me I had not been aware of them, the dogs that they use their hair for wool. Um, that was very uh, helpful to, to hear about that. Um, you can, uh, you know, email the show as usual at TexasHistoryLessons at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Texas History Lessons. And before we go, I'd like to remind everybody to go look on Spotify for a particular musician named Jared Flushy. He is Texas History Lessons Spotlight musical artist. 
we will be having an interview with them. I had a little conversation with them a couple of weeks ago, and I don't like to date when I record this because these episodes are meant to be everybody's opportunity as the first episode. They're not time sensitive. But uh, just before the Texas snowpocalypse of 2021, February 2021, I had a nice conversation with them. We're going to be getting together, talk about music, Texas music, and who knows what else. Maybe see if he has a good chili recipe or something he can share. Please go to Spotify and sample his music. Um, that's one of the best places he gets a good uh, record of people finding him and listening to him that way. Do what I did. Once you listen to a couple, go buy both the albums. He's got one called Jared Flushy, self-titled. That's with uh, full music, drums, guitar, bass, everything. And then there's a there's another one that's uh, called Home. That's an acoustic album. One of the things I love about uh, Jared Flushy's music is he has a wide range from just sad acoustic songs to storytelling songs to upbeat songs. He covers the whole gamut of what you can do with a song he covers it all he can make you laugh he can make you cry and go give him a chance this song that i want you to listen to this week is called fan the flames go to spotify listen to it and enjoy until next time thanks for listening to texas history lessons be good adios i'm a stranger and i'm an old friend I'm a love that'll never, ever be felt again I've gone a distance I've fallen short Seen the deeds of good men Been nothing of the sort I've been confused Felt tried and true and gave my all And wasted everything for a high to embrace the fall I don't want to be the reason you're crying But sometimes the truth hurts No, sometimes it feels like it ain't worth trying But you gotta push to make it work And it never gets easy and the problems never go away Some folks run from hell And some fan the flames Sometimes your words are sharp like daggers They pierce right into my heart We're so worked up Try to make things better We push too hard until they all fall apart no, we're just out here looking for an answer Cause insecurities eat us up like cancer The more I go, the more I feel like a tiny dancer just Spinning round and round and out of control Sometimes the truth hurts Though sometimes it feels like it ain't worth trying But you gotta push to make it work And it never gets easy and problems never go away
Some folks run from hell and some fan the flames I take the blame I fan the flames Watch the embers run down to the ground I take blame I fan the flames Till the only thing that's left Is the sound and I don't want to be the reason you cry But sometimes the truth hurts Though sometimes it feels like It ain't worth trying But you gotta push to make it work And it never gets easy Problems never go away Some folks run from hell And some fan the flames Some folks run from hell